Hey, Uni Church, how are we? Doing good? <clears throat> well, this is the start of our Ephesians series. My name's Ben, I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland EV. It's so good that we're going to kick into Ephesians together tonight. Uh, a few of us met today, this morning, to kind of get our heads into the book together, the Connect Group leaders, um, so that was really cool. And, and I'm really excited. Ephesians has lots of deep things to teach us. Um, to start off, though, I love making plans. Anyone else love making plans and dreaming like the kind of like three-year plan, five-year plan? Any planners? Yeah, okay, that's cool. I love that. Um, you know, when we decided to kind of come across to New Zealand, I was kind of dreaming about what life would look like, and I was thinking big picture, like, you know, what kind of um, meals would we host in our house and have people around, and what life would, you know, just the big picture stuff. And, and so my wife had to keep reminding me, we've got to get there first. There's all the little steps that have to happen to get there. And, you know, we're, we're still finding that out a few weeks in. But whether you're a planner or not, whether you're a big picture dreamer, or a little like details kind of orientated person, all of us have things in our life that we want to achieve. <clears throat> Goals, ambitions, plans, things that captivate us, that, that take up our energy, that take up our time, that kind of drive us forward. Have you ever wondered what God's plans are? Have you ever wondered what motivates him, what drives him, what he's working towards? In the world, have you ever wondered how aligned your plans are with God's? See, this week as we kick off Ephesians, we're going to spend this term looking at God's plan for us, what He's doing in the world, what He's done, what He will do, and we're going to see where all things are heading. It's going to Ephesians will push us deep into who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. It's going to be really good. Before we get into Ephesians one, I want you to just kind of orient us to Ephesus and to the book of Ephesians just to help give us some context for this series. Ephesus was this kind of, it was an ancient city in what's now modern day Turkey on the, on the west coast of Turkey. You can kind of see here, um, I just Google mapped it, right? Google Earth. Here you go. Here's Google Earth going into Ephesus. This is zoomed in on the temple of Artemis. How good is this on the big screen? I'm loving this. <clears throat> you could go here and you could get in a plane next week. You could go and, and wander around the ruins of the city of Ephesus. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful place. There's another um, photo up there with like a map of the main street of Ephesus. It was 17 feet wide, which was pretty legit for an old kind of um, city back then. <clears throat> and Ephesus was a port city full of hustle and bustle, traders, people that have come to make a life for themselves, dreamers. And, and people would come here from... All over the kind of Asia Minor region, this was a central city, a hub city for the region. There was, it was a Roman colony, so kind of Greco-Roman, first century, you think that, that kind of culture. But there was a good percentage of, of Greeks, of people from other kind of the um, Asian cities that had come in, Jewish people that had been scattered there when Israel was conquered, uh, heaps of different people. This melting, diverse kind of melting pot of cultures. And the city was known for its kind of religious lifestyle. Um, in Acts 19, you can go and chase this up later on, Paul goes to the city and he preaches the gospel and a bunch of people are converted and they then burn their like magic spell books and it's 50,000 pieces of silver worth of like books that they burn in the city, which is kind of like the equivalent of, I think if it's, um, uh, if it's the right amount, it's $3.5 billion. So huge amount of spells burnt up there. 
It was this kind of pluralistic society, Greco-Roman, the pantheon of gods. Um, there's a, a painting of the Temple of Artemis that's going to come up on the screen. Um, I, I wanted to get a photo, but it had been destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt, and then finally destroyed. So uh, we just have to imagine what it could have looked like. But this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and their kind of belief was uh, religion is good because it gives us money and it drives the economy. And all religions are good as long as they're inclusive of all the other ones. They didn't like anything that was going to shut out their religions. And so Paul is writing this letter to this group of house churches in Ephesus, probably around AD 60, in the early AD 60s, maybe 62. And and Ephesus was a city of 250,000 people, like a a major city back then. And, And Paul, he spent three years with this church, this little church, teaching them about Jesus, preaching the gospel, seeing people one for Jesus. But now he's writing to them from prison. He's in prison in Rome under house arrest. And, and, and the big things that he says that God is doing among them have started to feel a little bit small. You know, where is God's power, Paul? You're just stuck in a Roman prison. What, what, what is what, all this stuff you said about God and his plans? What's going on? And he's writing to kind of lift their eyes. Even though I'm in chains, God's plans will not be stopped. He lifts their eyes to see the scope of God's cosmic plan, the new life that God has brought them. And they're calling to live as God's people, saved and redeemed, their minds and their hearts renewed by Christ. See, us today, here in Auckland in 2022, we're actually not that dissimilar from Ephesus in the first century. There are a whole bunch of cultural differences and and thought, and you know, 2,000 years of history has passed. But Auckland is a diverse melting pot of people from all different kinds of cultures and religions all over the Pacific, all over New Zealand, that have come here to make a life for themselves, to study, to work, to kind of... this, This is the kind of hub city of our region and lots of us, lots of what we do is driven by these ambitions to make a life for ourselves, to money, uh, career, um, having the good life. And there are lots of different views on how to get the good life and lots of different religious paths. And just like Ephesus back then, people in Auckland today are not interested in the exclusive claims of Christianity, of who Jesus is. Just like back then, we need the reminder of what God is doing in our world, what he's doing in our city, and what he's doing in each of us. That's why we've called this Ephesian series, One. One, it captures up some of the core truths of the gospel that come to us in Christ Jesus. See, in Christ, we're brought brought back into relationship with God. We're, We're one with him. We're united with him. And we're also one together. We're one people, God's people, from this kind of cultural melting pot of Auckland. He's calling a people to be united to each other, his church. And God's got one plan for the world, to unite all things under King Jesus. And so Paul, inspired by the Spirit, wrote this letter to a motley bunch of first century Christians. And in the Spirit, we get that same message spoken to us in the word afresh tonight. That through his church, God is doing great things, uniting all, all things, everything under Jesus. He's got a cosmic plan and you and I are at the center of God's plan in the universe. 
Are you guys excited to get into Ephesians? Yeah? Let's do it, hey? Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would help us as we open up Ephesians 1. Father God, we're so excited to see your word tonight. Um, We come expectant for you to work in us. Uh, Would you give us ears to hear, hearts to listen? Would you change us tonight? We pray as we look at the blessings that you have poured out on us, that we would be significantly and profoundly impacted and that you would lead to seeing great change and, and growth and thankfulness in our own lives. We pray that you'd um, help us to understand and as we spend time in your word, that you would grow us, shape us and change us to be more like your son. Amen. Okay, first thing I want us to know, and this is kind of the first thesis of Paul's letter, the entire letter, he starts it in chapter one, giving us the thesis, is that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He kind of Paul greets them, and then he says in verse 3, pick it up with me, have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, open one up, share with the person next to you. We're going to kind of work through some of the details of the text tonight, and we're actually going to go a bit deep. So get ready for that. I know this is a lecture hall. I'll try and keep it a bit more interesting than your lectures. But we're going to, because we think this matters, getting into the Word. So verse 3, have it open in front of you. He says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, In the heavens, in Christ. See, verse 3 to 14, in the original Greek, which Paul was writing this, it was just one long sentence. There's no full stops. You know, that would have been a lot harder for when it was getting read out earlier if it didn't have full stops in it. But we've put them in in English to make it kind of understandable. But for Paul, this is just one long stream of blessings, one long sentence. It's like a, a snowball at the top of the hill starts rolling down the hill, picking up more and more snow until it's like an avalanche, this huge. Um, ball of snow rolling down the hill. Paul can't stop himself. He's that excited about all these blessings. See, according to Paul, if we're in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. And, and he goes on to unpack what each of those are in the kind of following verses. So let's jump in. There's five that I want to look at tonight. So we're going to work through them together. Let's do it. In verse four, we see the first blessing that we have been chosen by God. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. See, God chose us in him. The in him here is in Christ. See, without Christ and his work, God would not have been able to choose us. We're going to come and look at that in in a second. But it's important here to note that it's in Christ that we're chosen. What, what did he choose us for? Or when did he choose us? Sorry, first. Before the foundation of the world. See, in pre-creation eternity, God existed in Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect unity, perfect love, perfectly satisfied in himself. And in that space, he thought of us. And he thought of a people that he would create. And he thought that he would, even before he created them, he chose us. Before anything existed, God made a plan to choose us. Isn't that amazing? Before the foundations of the world. Why did he choose us? Well, to be holy and blameless. See, God knew that when he created humanity, that humanity would reject him. That we would rebel against him and we wouldn't live our purpose to have perfect relationship with God. And so even though we were unholy, not living 
according to our purpose, our separate, uh, the thing we'd been separated out for, even though we were blameworthy, rejecting God, he called us and chose us to be blameless, to be, um, un, to be holy and blameless. Why did he do it? It's in love. See, why did God choose us? He did it in love. He existed in perfect love as Father, Son, and Spirit for eternity. He didn't need us. God wasn't needy. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He did it because he pictured a, a humanity where, where he could choose us and we would come and join in the perfect love and relationship that he had. And, and then he did it and acted on that in love. It's out of this compassion and this desire to show us love. And, and I think it's important to note that this verse here, chosen, this is the key verb in this whole section. See, every other verb, every other blessing that we have, the adoption, the redemption, the uh, inheritance, the revelation of God, all those different blessings, they don't come to us if God doesn't choose us. They all hang off this choice from God. This choosing, it's this idea of election, or verse, verse 5 puts it as predestination. I, I would summarize it and say something like this. Those who freely choose God have been freely chosen by God. How cool was hearing some of Henry's story on the video? And he, he talked about that moment when he made a choice. But behind that choice, Paul says in Ephesians 1, was God choosing Henry, calling him to himself. And I think this doctrine, it stimulated lots of thoughts and discussions over the centuries. But it's pretty easy to see here, isn't it? It's not complex when you see it there in verse 4. But understanding how it works uh, philosophically, logically, um, that takes a bit more work. And I'm not going to spend much more time on it tonight. You can ask me questions about it in question time if you'd like. But I just want to highlight that this is consistent with how God has acted throughout history. In the Old Testament, he chooses a special people for himself, Israel. And in the New Testament, it's not a cultural kind of ethnic group that he chooses, but it's those who are in Christ who are now God's special people. And it's also consistent with God's character. See, God is a God of um, both mercy and love, but also justice. He must act justly towards us. And none of us, in fact, deserve to be chosen by God. In fact, without God's choice of us, we wouldn't choose him. And we don't do anything to earn the choice. Like, how could we, right? We weren't even made. We didn't exist when God chose us. See, God would be completely just if he chose no one. And yet in his love and mercy combined with his justice, he chooses to act in love and save some. And maybe this makes you ask the question, well, why doesn't God just choose to save everyone? Just do it that way. And, you know, I'm not, we don't have a full answer for that. But I think two parts of the question. The first one is that we don't quite understand God's character. We don't understand just how holy he is, how other from us he is, how just he is. And we probably don't quite understand our own hearts, our own nature, how rebellious we are, how unworthy before God we are. The other answer that Paul goes to in Romans 9 is to kind of say, well, who are we as humans to question God? See, God's infinite in his wisdom and mercy. He's fully just and holy, but yet fully loving. And, and so maybe if we think we could work out a better system than God to be both loving and just and save, maybe we're missing something about God and his character. 
or about our human natures. See, we're finite, we're limited. We don't have the full picture that God has. But yet he understands it and acts fully justly and fully in love to save. See, our faith rests completely on God's work of first choosing us. It's not based on such an unsteady foundation like our own ability to choose him first, our own having our lives together, being good people. God's not a coach picking a starting lineup for his uh, you know, fantasy football team. Um, if we get this truth, it'll lead us deeper into humility. See, God chose us in love before we even existed. And I think sometimes some of us, particularly if you're here tonight and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, we can start to slip into this mode of thinking where we go, yeah, God made a pretty good choice with me. Look at the way I serve him. Look at the way I love him. Look at the way I love others. I give to church. I do all this kind of Christian stuff. Yeah, God made a good choice picking me. But it's not true, is it? When we, when we get this doctrine that God chose us first, it draws us away from ourselves and our own performance and towards God and his love for us, that he might choose us. It draws us to humility before God, to throw ourselves on his love. See, we're going to spend more time looking at this next week as well, so we'll come back and we'll think a bit more about God's choice and our inability to choose God until he first freely chose us. But that's the first blessing we see here, God's choosing of us, which leads us to humility. Secondly, we see that God adopts us for himself. See in verse 5. See, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. See, before the foundations of the world, God chose us. And then in the present... He adopts us at that moment when we put our trust in Jesus. He adopts us into his family. And and this idea of adoption into a family, it kind of captures up all the benefits of being in a family. You know, Paul uses the language of sonship. Um, He's not being, he's not using that word to indicate gender, right? This is an adoption for both men and women in Christ. It's not just about sons, but he's using the language of sonship here specifically. Because the son was, and sonship was quite important back in first century Greco-Roman culture. Right? The son was the one, the eldest son was the one who was the heir, the one who would receive the inheritance. It was all passed through the sons. And, and so what Paul's saying here, it's this kind of, this legal term. He's saying that you have been adopted into God's family and you have all the blessings and the inheritance and the rights of God's own son, Jesus. You've been adopted in with the same rights and privileges. See, we get all those benefits, don't we, if we're adopted? Eternity with God, intimacy and access to God. We can pray to him. We're established as his heirs. We're safe and secure with him. We get the inheritance. We're going to come to that in a sec. See, we can approach the God of the universe without fear and call him father. We've got this special access because we've been adopted in. Imagine you wanted to go and see Jacinda Ardern, right? You wanted to kind of give us some political pointers or something, you know, just have a chat. And you kind of go, I'm going to try and, I'm going to, you somehow found out where she lived and, and kind of got into her property and creeped in through the window. And you're like, Jacinda, I just want to tell you something. Let me, let me talk to you. Which you would get out, you would be out of there in a flash, right? There'd be security all over you. You probably wouldn't even make it over the gate, let's be honest. 
But do you know who has that kind of access? Neve, her little three-year-old daughter, who can go into her room in the middle of the night and say, Mom, I need a drink. And, and, and she'll listen to her and she'll take her and she'll get her a drink. See, because she's part of the family. She's adopted in with access and intimacy of relationship that us on the outside could only just look in and dream about. That's us with God. We're adopted. We're part of his family. We've got intimacy and access to God as his family. See, he won't ever turn us aside when we come to him. He won't ever be distant towards us. He won't ever reject us and not listen to us if we're his children. We've got this beautiful access to God. That's the second blessing. Access to God adopted in, which leads us to this kind of intimacy and privilege. Thirdly, we've got redemption and forgiveness in verse 7. Look at it there with me. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. See, if God's going to choose us and adopt us, he's going to choose us before the foundations of the world, adopt us into his family, then God needs to deal with the problem of our trespasses. Or our sin is the other word that you often hear for that. And I say God needs to deal with it because you and I, we are completely unable to deal with the problem on our own. See, Paul describes one filled with trespasses, of going where we shouldn't have gone, of deciding to ignore the signs, ignore God and go against him in our lives. That's the Bible's definition of sin. It's not just the bad things that you do. It's rejecting God and his will in your life. It's deciding that you want to rule your own life, not listen to him, ignoring him. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that our sin, our rejection and ignorance of God, has actually made us that we're dead, spiritually dead. We're so unable to turn away from it. There's this idea of like a zombie just like lurching forward. We can't turn away from our sin, our trespass of God. In chapter 4, Paul goes on to say that we're not just unable to stop sinning, but that we love it, that it defines who we are, that we live our lives wanting to trespass further and further into the forest of rebellion against God. See, that's why we need redemption. This was a term in Greco-Roman culture to kind of, redemption picks up this language of ransom, of paying the price to free someone. And we see it in Old Testament. Um, The best example is Israel saved out of Egypt. They are redeemed out of Egypt. They're saved. They're delivered. They couldn't do it on their own, and God saved them. In the New Testament times, this word was used to describe the the, um, way that you would free a slave, someone who's in debt. You would pay the price the slave, and then they would be free. They would no longer be um, living as a slave. They would be ransomed, redeemed. And and Paul here is saying, the price of our redemption is Jesus' blood. His death purchases for us freedom from the penalty of sin, from the enslavement that comes about because we love to keep on sinning and we can't stop, and, and from the ultimate kind of judgment before God That will happen because of our sin. See, this is the heart of the Christian faith, isn't it? Before God, we deserve judgment. But in Christ, he has ransomed us. He has rescued us and forgiven us. At the greatest cost, his own life, we've been set free. 
think if we understand that, it'll lead us to such a deep gratitude, won't it? Christians are at their core called to be people who are grateful. If someone helps you with a task in your week, you know, washing the car, and you could just do it on your own, you're a bit thankful, aren't you? You're a bit thankful. Thanks for helping me out with that. That was really kind. But you could have done it on your own. But for someone to help you with something which you are completely stuck with, unable to change, and completely in need, wow, that's, there's gratitude there. And that's why Christians are grateful people. The key phrase here in this, in this blessing, and actually for all the blessings, is this idea of being in Christ or in Him. I think I counted it 12 times. It might be wrong, but you can, you can check later. Um, 12 times in Christ or in him in this section. And it describes the reality of what it looks like to be a Christian. At the heart of Christianity is this idea that it's not, unto, it's not us and our performance before God on which we're judged, but if we're in Christ, then it's him and his performance and his reward on which God looks at us. He takes on our judgment and punishment that we deserve for our transgressions and gives us his perfect life. And so we find forgiveness. It's like getting, hopping into a lift, right? You step into a lift at the bottom of a high-rise building and, and, and you then trust it to take you up to the top. Now, it doesn't really matter what you do in the lift. If you run on the spot on the lift, it's not going to get you there any faster. It's not going to stop you getting there any slower. Um, it doesn't even matter how much you think the lift is going to go up or not. It's not dependent on you and your how powerful your, your kind of faith is, your desire is, it depends on how solid the lift is. Your faith is only as good as what you have your faith in. And here we see that Jesus is the one that we have our faith in, and in him we're redeemed, we're ransomed, we've been set free, and we've been forgiven. It's a beautiful blessing of God for those that are in Christ. The fourth blessing that we're going to look at tonight is the blessing of revelation. Actually, it's in verse 9 and 10 that God hasn't left us in the dark, what he's doing in the world, but we're going to skip over it. I, should, I shouldn't have said we're going to look at it. We're going to skip over it and come back to it at the end. We're going to, we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about that blessing, but first let's uh, look at the fifth one in verse 11. We're going to look at the blessing of inheritance. See it in verse 11. Pick it up with me. He says, In him we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. See, what is this inheritance? Well, I think it's true and right, and we see this through the passage, don't we, that it's this idea that we've been forgiven, we've been brought into God's family, adopted, we've been chosen, we've got, we're now secure in Christ. We're looking forward to eternity with God in love and relationship. And in verse 12, I think, we see this idea again that it's God's plans that are secure. See, which of us could say, everything will work out the way I will it? Which of us could say that? Like, we all will things, we all have desires, we all have plans. Whose plans work out for them 100% of the time? None of us. We're human. But God, his plans always work out the way that he wills them. See the security, the assurance that we have there in the God that we trust. But there's another way that we understand this concept of inheritance. And it's to say that we, if we're in Christ, 
We're God's inheritance, his people, his chosen people. See verse 13. It says, In him, in Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. See, at that moment when you heard the gospel um, and you put your trust in Jesus, when you believed him, when you took up being adopted and redeemed and forgiven, Paul says that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And, and this idea of a seal is this kind of uh, idea of ownership and authenticity. You know, not a seal that you go and see in a zoo. This is like a, a wax seal. Oh, that was funny. Come on. Come on, guys. You're wearing masks. Give me something. Um, you know, a wax seal, you'd put it on a letter and it would kind of stamp your authenticity on it. it this is genuinely a letter from you. Or you'd, on a bit of pottery, you'd put the seal on the bottom and it'd be like, this is, own, this is the property of Ben. Right? I put my special family seal on it. It was that idea. And, and Paul's saying the Spirit, he functions in our lives as God's seal on us. See, we're owned by God, and the Spirit is the sign of the future blessings that are to come. The, the other way that Paul uses to describe this language is the language of a down payment in verse 14. It says, The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. See, the Holy Spirit in our lives functions as this kind of down payment, the, the first bit of the good stuff that is to come. It's kind of a little bit like an engagement ring. See, when you give someone an engagement ring, you're not married yet. Your, your relationship status hasn't really changed, but there's this pledge. It's legit. It's like it's more than just dating now. You've, you've given them the engagement ring. It's a sign of the commitment, the goodness, the love that is to come in the marriage relationship. That's like the spirit that God gives to us. He gives us his spirit to kind of, we get the first bit of it now and it's this pledge, this commitment that there's more to come. See, notice what's being redeemed. The possession, that's us. We're God's possession. See, remember verse seven, we're the ones that have redemption. We're the ones being redeemed. God gives us his spirit as a seal and a down payment that we're his. The Spirit is this kind of guarantee in our lives that we're God's special chosen people. We're his inheritance. He's going to claim us and take us with him into eternity. See, if, you're in, if you've got the Spirit in you, if you've got God's Spirit in you, you're his inheritance, he's already made the deposit. It's secure, isn't it? This is the God who works out all things according to his will. You're safe with him. If you're here today with doubts and fears, if you're wondering whether you're going to keep trusting Jesus or not, God gave you his spirit to secure you as his chosen person, to give you the assurance of your salvation. Bring those doubts and fears that you have to him. Share them with each other in community, but keep reminding yourself that you are his his chosen inheritance, and he will bring you home. Keep trusting the God who has chosen you and keeps you trusting. See, all these blessings here, notice that it's God who's active and us who are the passive kind of recipients. God chooses, God adopts, God redeems, God gives us the inheritance. It's not 50-50. We don't bring anything to the table. All we do is 
put our trust in Jesus. He does all the rest. And even that moment, we know before the creation of the world, he chose us for that. It's God as Father, Son, and Spirit at work in us. Why does he do it? Why does he give us all these blessings in our lives? Why does he pour out blessing after blessing after blessing like an avalanche rolling down a hill? Well, it's so that we might bring him praise. We saw it in verse 6, didn't we? In verse 12 and in verse 14. God planned and accomplished your, your life and chose you before the creation of the world so that you might come into existence, be born and grow up to put your trust in him and live for his praise. That's his grand plan with you. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And for a human to kind of do that, that would be a bit narcissistic, wouldn't it? Humans are limited. You know, no human deserves that kind of praise. But this is God, the creator of everything. And he made us and invited us to find joy in praising him. What a great blessing all these things are for us. But you'll notice that it's not, it's not necessarily all about us. Is it? The blessings already are pointing back. They're curving back out to, to bring praise to him and glory to him. The second thing I want us to know is coming back to that fourth blessing, Revelation. God has made his plans known and they all center on Christ. There's a second point. So come back to verse 9 with me. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. God's made known to us the mystery of his who a mystery here. It's not like um, you know, a Scooby-Doo mystery or like a, a, a whodunit kind of problem solving. When Paul says mystery, he means something that you can't work out on your own. We needed God to reveal it to us. And that's what he's done, isn't it? That he has this plan for just the right time to bring all things together in Christ. It's this sense of fullness and completion that at just the right moment within all the, the, the seasons of the history of the world from its start date until the end of its time, that God's purpose that he planned before the creation of the world would to be to bring all things together in Christ. What does it mean though? All things in Christ. All things together in Christ. The idea here is this idea of um, summing up, bringing to a head, see, seeing brought into right relation. Okay, it's this, um, the, the word here has its roots in like uh, maths, like shopkeepers. They would like write down the totals for all the different things that you were going to buy and they'd put the top total, the sum of everything underneath it. That's this word, this summing up kind of word. Um, or at the end of a debate, you would, they would use this word and it's to kind of, it's to sum up, it's to bring together all the ideas and to kind of show how each of the things that you've communicated is part of this one big thing that you're trying to communicate, the summing up. And so Paul's not saying here that all things, all people will be together with Christ. Um, this verse has been used by you know, universalist people who say, well, it doesn't really matter what we do because we're all going to go and be with Jesus anyway. But it's not what this verse is saying. See, this verse is saying that all things will be summed up or brought under the headship of Christ, like columns underneath the head figure. The Bible is very clear about these eternal realities. There's a day coming when all people will be held to account by how they have related to God. 
And, and they'll either be um, people who are in Christ, who are chosen, adopted, given the inheritance, saved, redeemed, all those different things. And, and, and they'll spend eternity with God because they're in Christ, trusting his life and his reward instead of their own life. Or they'll be judged. They'll be summed up under the, under the king and be judged and held accountable for how they've acted for rejecting him. They'll spend eternity without God in judgment and destruction. See, that's what Paul means here when he says that all things will be summed up. All things will be brought together in Christ. It's as if summing up under the headship of. It's like the end of a, a, a great battle. You know, picture like a, a medieval battle. Um, one side wins the war, and basically all the different troops on the field are now summed up based on where they fit, which side they're on. See, the victors, they're summed up and they go, yes, we won the battle, we're, we're free, they, they rescue the prisoners, they get the spoils of war. But the, the losers, they're held accountable, they're taken captive, they're um, treated in, in right relationship because of their position as the losers of the battle. They're summed up as defeated enemies of the other army. And this idea of this kind of summing up this all things together under Christ, it carries the idea of restoration. That the, the brokenness and sin that kind of take over our world will be done away with. And, and all things, not just humans, will be brought back into proper function under Christ and his lordship. See, all of these blessings are going to come to us at the fullness of time. When is that? It's this time that's coming in the future when Jesus will return as judge and saviour, when he'll hold us to account and, and, and we'll say, I'm in Christ. And he'll look at us and he'll say, come, come home. Come home, my child. You're adopted, you're chosen, and you're forgiven. But the blessings and this kind of fullness of time, it started with the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, come back to verse, come forward, sorry, to verse 20. See what, see what Paul says? He says, this, he's talking about the mighty power of God. He says, that he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, Jesus isn't just going to be the king of everything at this future date. He's the king now. There are lots of, lots of things that are living in opposition to him, that will change in the future. But it's even now he's the king. See, when was Jesus seated and raised at the right hand of the Father? When he beat death. He's reigning now. When is he ruling over every authority and power? It's in this age as well as the age to come. To go back to the kind of the engagement ring illustration, the future is coming. It's not yet here in full, but it's secured and, and granted now. And it will come in fullness in the future. See, if, if you're in Christ, you know where all things are heading. We've had a glimpse. God, Paul's kind of shown us, he's pulled back the curtain and shown us God's plan of where everything is going. God's got no rival. He's got no limits. Nothing can stop his will. And, and you might feel small and insignificant in your workplace or at your uni or in your friend group or in whatever you're doing this week in Auckland. But you are part of God's plan to sum up all things under the headship of Jesus. See, Paul wrote to these little house churches from, in Ephesus from prison. 
And he wanted to remind them that although he was powerless and weak, that God is powerful and strong and acts according to his will. He works out everything according to his will. And he does it not just in raising Christ from the dead, but in us, we see as well. That's, the, that's his power in us who believe. See, there's, there's one ruler, Jesus. He's ruling now, even though people don't quite acknowledge or understand his full rule, and he will rule for eternity to come. There's one plan to sum up all things under his headship, and he's called us to be part of this plan. When you understand these truths of these blessings, it ought to give you courage to go and share them with others. We don't know who God's chosen. We don't know who he's at work to save in love until we share the gospel with them. See, I want you to approach the Christian life this week knowing that you are chosen and secure. That you are adopted and you have this intimate access to God as Father. That you are redeemed and forgiven and safe with him. That you have God's Spirit securing your inheritance with him and securing you as his inheritance. That he will bring you home. And all of that happens in your life so that you might bring him praise. Yeah, what a great series of blessings we have seen. And we've seen that they all center on Jesus. How about we pray? Father, we pray that you might open the eyes of our heart and enlighten us so that we might know the hope of your calling and revel in it. That you would impress on our hearts tonight the riches of your glorious inheritance to us, your saints. We're your people. We're safe and secure with you. We've got eternity with you to look forward to and you'll bring us home. Remind us afresh today of the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe that you are at work in the world, bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus. Father God, you work out everything in agreement with the purpose of your will. Would we go out this week trusting those truths more and more? Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.